Welcome to Season 3 of Locker Room for Growers, a show with human-centric conversations that include compelling stories, unique professions, and those who set the tone for living with a positive attitude. I'm your host, Debbie Ellickson. Please subscribe to the show and check out our past episodes and clips. Follow me on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Threads, and more. Now let's meet our next guest. Two leading Black Sox scandal scholars, Jacob Pomerenke and Dr. David Fletcher, edited a new release called Joe Jackson, Plaintiff versus Chicago American League Ball Club Defendant, the never-seen-before trial transcript. This is the full testimony from Shoeless Joe Jackson's 1924 courtroom trial against the Chicago White Sox team and team owner Charles Kaminsky when he sued for breach of contract after the baseball-fixing trial. In 1919, the Chicago White Sox lost to the Cincinnati Reds in the World Series. Joe Jackson, Buck Weaver, and six more teammates were accused of accepting bribes from gamblers to intentionally throw the series. White Sox owner Charles Comiskey suspended Jackson and two pitchers after they confessed their involvement to the grand jury. The accused players were acquitted in a high-profile trial. However, the newly hired baseball commissioner, Kinesaw Mountain Landis, permanently banned the Black Sox players from professional baseball. Jackson and three other players had signed long-term contracts with the White Sox before they were banned. They subsequently sued to recover some of their lost salaries. Only Jackson's case went to trial. Shoeless Joe sought $16,000 in damages for the three-year contract he had signed before the 1920 season. He never received the money. Dr. Fletcher is the founder of the Chicago Baseball Museum and president and CEO and chief medical officer of SafeWorks Illinois. Jacob Pomerenke is the director of editorial content for the Society for American Baseball Research. He is the editor of Scandal on the South Side, the 1919 Chicago White Sox, and the Eight Miss Out Project. Please welcome Dr. David Fletcher and Jacob Pomerenke. Well, thank you for the introduction. <laughs> thank you. Did I get all of that correct? That all yes. sounds right. Okay. Yes, you did. Good. So where to begin? I mean, the first thing, we kind of talked a little bit about this before I hit record, but it it just I can't wrap my head around that a player spends their entire life hoping to play in the World Series and their whole career is geared towards that moment. And then once they get there, they would actually agree to fix games for money. So it it has to go way deeper than just hatred for an owner because a lot of players play for people they don't like. And the economy was post-war, post-pandemic, and it was already on the rise. So how do we wrap our heads around this? Well, I believe that it wasn't hatred of, of the owner. I think it was just basically greed. I think it was easy money. 
you, you have to remember Joe Jackson already was a World Series champion. He won in 1917 with the White Sox. And I think you brought on before we started the formal Zoom interview is the fact that Charles Comiskey did not pay substandard wages. He was the top of the pay scale. And yeah. so the whole issue with the theory that this is all started because of the, you know, the Scrooge-like Charles Comiskey is a myth. And Jacob's done a great job with this called Eight Men Out Miss Out project, which has identified all these common misconceptions. And so I think that's important to bring out. In, in my belief, it was a strategy, easy money, money that they had never made before and in one easy situation. And when, you know, they got actually big bills for this, this wasn't a check. I mean, they actually saw real denominations. So they would have got World Series bonuses as well on top of their salaries. And, and how much was that bonus at the time? The bonus for the winning team was about $5,000, which was um, pretty much average uh, annual major league salary at that time. And the bonus for the losing team was around $3,500. Um, that's somewhere around $200,000 in today's money. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, some of those players would have earned uh, close to their annual salary just with the World Series bonus if they had won it all. And the bribe money that some of them received, Joe Jackson received $5,000. If he had won the World Series, he would have gotten even more than that uh, just from the winning player's share. So they really didn't make all that much in order to throw the World Series. No. And then when you factor in, like, wasn't it right after this happened when Babe Ruth signed his contract, he literally changed the money side of of contracts for players certainly for the star players absolutely you yeah know, and, and the big stars like ty cobb and trish speaker and walter johnson were making very good money eddie collins on the white Sox was also making very good money but but make no mistake the black Sox players were making very good money i mean eddie seacott was one of the highest paid pitchers in baseball buck weaver was the highest one of the highest paid third baseman in baseball so it's not that the white Sox players were not making you know good salaries for their era they absolutely were but, you know, as Dr. Fletcher said, this was uh, probably a very high reward, low risk proposition. They saw a chance to make some easy money. And even if they did get caught, they had a pretty good idea that they were not going to get punished for it because other players had been caught fixing games before that and they had not really been punished. So I think this was an easy score mm -hmm. and they uh, unfortunately got caught. So tell us a little bit about Joe Jackson and the star power he had at the time. Jacob, why'd you take that? Yeah, so, you know, Sheila Joe Jackson is said to be one of the greatest natural hitters in baseball history. If he could do nothing else, he could swing a bat and, and hit the ball far. Just a tremendous athlete, uh, great in left field, uh, great defender as well, uh, good base runner. You know, he could do it all. Babe Ruth was said to have copied his swing. And so this was just a fantastic ball player on the field. There's, there's no question about that. And anybody who was fortunate enough to watch him play all came away with the same impression. You know, this guy's one of the best we've ever seen. Well, Debbie, I think it's important to remember when he got kicked out of baseball, he was batting 356 career average, which is the wow. third best in Major League Baseball history. So that's how incredible a player he was. And uh, I think to emphasize what Jacob said is that, you know, Babe Ruth really talked about what his swing and how he patterned after that. So I think that's a pretty good uh, legacy for wow. star power. Yeah, such a waste. Eh? So 
the other thing that confuses me, I know that when you watch the movie Eight Men Out, it really portrays these players as uneducated in addition to not being well paid. But we know otherwise. And at that time, it looked like the team set them up with their with the team lawyer to kind of represent all of them. But why didn't these players have their own lawyer? Well, eventually they did. I mean, originally when Eddie Seacott and Joe Jackson and Lefty Williams testified before the grand jury, they did not have attorneys. We do have testimony from Joe Jackson in his 1921 criminal trial uh, testimony that Alfred Austrian offered and suggested he get an attorney. He said he needed one badly, but um, he didn't facilitate him getting an attorney because Jackson said he wanted to get somebody from Austrian's firm. Austrian did not have an obligation to read Miranda rights to Jackson about the fact that he was representing the White Sox, not him. Uh, obviously, if Jackson had gotten legal counsel, the whole situation could have been a lot different because this grand jury testimony in September of 1920 sinks him in his back pay trial in 1924. That's the centerpiece of the whole trial. Hmm. And that verdict was not guilty, but, and, you know, Buck Weaver was a, a fairly well-known name at that time and maybe some of the other players but they all seem to be a footnote compared to Joe Jackson. Why was he the one that seems to be the most maligned? Is that because he had a bigger star power? Yeah. Jackson was, you know, the iconic star, um, you know, certainly the best hitter on the team, him and Eddie Collins. And so his star power has really never receded in the last hundred years. And combine that with the fact that you've got two major Hollywood films, uh, mm -hmm. Eight Men Out and Field of Dreams that largely center on Shoeless Joe um, and kind of build up this, you know, iconic figure, a mythical figure, really. Yeah. Uh, but his name is still very, very prominent. People know who he is. And we like to say that he's more famous outside the Hall of Fame and outside of baseball than he ever would be if he had been inducted 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, nobody would know who he was then. So he's still one of the big reasons why we're continuing to talk about this story 100 years later. Well, it is a fascinating story. I still can't wrap my head around how players can do this. But before this book was published that you guys did in 2023 with the transcripts, you mentioned that only 10 people living had seen the entire transcript. How is that possible? Sure. I can tell the story. We have, a, you know, in the book, we describe its uh, origin and how it, it resurfaced. Um, the reason why it had never been read by a wide number of people was because it was not out in the public domain. And so it was a transcript that almost got thrown away by the Milwaukee court system. So the son of um, Ray Cannon, the attorney who became a Wisconsin three-term congressman, um, Robert Cannon, who was also well-known for the first Major League Baseball players union uh, director, even before Marvin Miller, had gotten a call from the clerk's office in the late 1950s and say they were pruning their files. And they 
had the box of the transcripts. They also had all the exhibits, including 15 cash paychecks of Joe Jackson with his signature or his wife's signature on the back of the checks. And so he was asked if he wanted to take it and not throw it to the you know, junk pile. And so Robert Cannon did take it. He passed it on to his son, Tom, who was sort of the guardian of the archives. And the, the family allowed a couple people to make copies. One was uh, Donald Grotman, an, an author, who wrote some books about Joe Jackson, who were very sympathetic to Joe Jackson. And the second uh, author was Jerome Holtzman, who was the first Major League Baseball historian. He used to be a Chicago Tribune uh, sports writer, Chicago Sun-Times. He invented the save statistic. And so Jerome got a copy of transcript. He wrote a book about the Black Sox, basically saying that Joe Jackson, he, he may not be able to read, but he could count that basically because he got the $5,000, he was guilty. And so Jerome got a copy of the transcript. I developed a relationship with Jerome in 2008, and I ended up acquiring his copy of the transcript from him. But I had previously seen it in 2003 because because of my interest in the Black Sox, I went to Milwaukee in June of 2003 with a very famous Black Sox researcher who unfortunately has passed away in 2009 named Gene Carney, who wrote a very seminal book called Burying the Black Sox. And we asked permission if Tom would let us come to his office in Milwaukee and look at it. And so we looked at it and became familiar with its contents. And that was sort of my interest to eventually acquire a copy. You know, it was not inexpensive to pay. I had to pay some good money for that to Mr. Holtzman. But it was something I allowed researchers to access. And in fact, a, an author named Bill Lamb used it for his very seminal book about the Black Sox on trial. And so Jacob, because it was leadership and Sabre and his own leadership in the Black Sox Sabre Committee, was part of a 2022 Illinois Supreme Court Symposium on doing a retrospect of the Black Sox. He did it in the Springfield, the Lincoln Museum, and he also did it in Chicago. And I saw Jacob at the Springfield Lincoln Museum. I said, hey, 2024 is coming up. He knew I had the transcript and we said, hey, we need to get this out there. And so that's the origin of the project. And you're talking of a book that's got 330,000 words. It's massive. How long did it take it, it, you it's to massive. do? Yes, it's massive. <laughs> Telephone book size. I'll let Jacob kind of, because he did a lot of the major editing after I had gotten it put on Word. Yeah, you know, so the original transcript was made by the court recorder, the one that the Cannon family had. And so it was a lot of legal formatting. I think the original was uh, almost 1,700 pages long, printed, double spaced, a lot of legal formatting that we had to clean up a little bit. But we wanted to get this out there. We wanted people to be able to see this because not only is their original testimony from Shoeless Joe's 1924 trial, um, but that testimony includes large excerpts from the 1920 grand jury hearings and the 1921 criminal trial as well. Um, so there's a lot of primary source documentation for future historians to go through. It's also just really fascinating to hear in Shoeless Joe's own words what happened in the 1919 World Series and how he was involved. We've got multiple versions of that story because the one he told in 1920 is a very different version uh, than the one he told on the stand in 1924. So, you know, Why it's great to have this is? out there. Why do you think that it was so different? 
Well, part of it is because he did have his own lawyers in 1924. Oh. And so he was able to uh, have legal representation. Whereas in 1920, he just went alone, uh, basically to the grand jury and kind of told all he knew. And in 1920, his testimony was basically, yeah, we did it. We, we tried to throw the World Series. We were paid off by gamblers and we were promised $20,000 and we only received five. That's what she was just said at the time. Uh, so he was complaining that he didn't get all the money that he was promised. And in 1924, his story changed and he said, I had nothing to do with it. I didn't even answer those questions in 1920 the way that this transcript says that I did. That's why he was eventually cited for perjury and uh, briefly thrown in jail at the end of his trial, you know, because we've got under oath two different versions of the yeah. story. And the judge said, you must be lying somewhere. I believe you're lying now uh, in this trial, not the original. It's really fascinating to see in their own words what they had to say, because we really don't have a lot of evidence, very few interviews and very few court records uh, showing their own testimony. It kind of sounds like a new movie on the horizon. <laughs> we We've been told that, Debbie. I mean, it's a, it's really reads well. It re reads like a movie script. It's really tight. I, I think what helps it being so concise is you got some really skilled attorneys who were um, handling the case, didn't have a lot of fluff. And also you had a judge who was very involved in controlling the trial, controlling objections and rulings. And so it's got a great flow. I mean, that's probably... What I enjoy the most is it just it it, it is not dry and for and I do a, my day job I do a lot of expert witness I do, yeah. do a lot of transcripts in fact like I'm getting ready to testify in a case tomorrow as a defense expert in a slip and fall case so I read these transcripts all the time so this is one that's just flows well and I think Jacob and I really packaged it well and in how it, it just it's again you've got this great cover with Todd Radom. It, it really just feels compelling. And so, you know, we hope that it gets picked up, that it's certainly a much better story than Eight Men Out because it tells a story over several years and it's got under oath. This isn't speculation. We know what they say. Mm -hmm. And it builds to a, to a crescendo. Not only is Joe Jackson thrown in jail, but Happy Felch who was thrown in jail as well. So... We hope it is. I think, I think it has it has the potential. Yeah, because Eight Man Out was more based on media newspaper headlines, wasn't it? That's correct. I mean, one of the things that I was fortunate that I got to spend time with Elliot Asinoff, uh in 2002, 2003, I actually went to his house. That's where he admitted he made up the character Harry F., about uh, threatening Lefty Williams before game eight. So I've got a pretty good perspective on how his research was, or I should say his lack of research. Mm. Uh, basically, it was a clip job. He only had a few primary sources, and, and both Jacob and I have looked at his actual notes, which are at the Chicago History Museum. When they acquired it, they had me look at it, and it just basically said the emperor has no clothes. is because there's just no documentation. for and He basically... You know, he told me he was a, a TV writer and he had, had written a script about the White Sox, Black Sox scandal. It was kind of poo-pooed by baseball in the early 1960s it, when baseball was on CBS. And so that's when he when that got some publicity about Major League Baseball being upset about the script. He got the book contract 
to do eight men out. And that's kind of how it started it. I think he definitely tells the story well in, in dramatic, yeah. somewhat historical novel way. But for me as a Chicagoan, now I've Jacob's a Chicagoan, is that James T. Farrell is the person who really, that's his book. He gave the whole outline, gave everything to Elliot Asimov. And then obviously there's a big flavor of, of Nelson Algren in there. So those kind of some of my favorite Chicago writers, it's really their book. What what really surprised you about these transcripts the most? You know, one of the things that I was really surprised by was reading through Charles Comiskey's testimony under oath. He was on the witness stand for three or four days and he was cross-examined by Sheila Joe's lawyers as well. He was not in very good health at that time. This was close to the end of his life. He died in 1931, uh, about seven years earlier. But he was still very uh, passionate about the White Sox, about baseball, about the integrity of, of his team. And so, you know, he was very feisty on the stand. It's some very fiery exchanges with Ray Cannon, Shoeless Joe's lawyer. Again, it's a lot of fun to read through um, firsthand testimony from all these important baseball figures. Um, and commit reading Comiskey. I mean, he's not someone who was interviewed very often about the Black Sox scandal. He didn't have much to say publicly about the scandal uh, after it happened, but he was on the witness stand answering questions for three or four days. It, it's really interesting to see what he had to say about it. I would say for me, just the over aspect of you would never see us in modern day a star player suing major league baseball team and, and all the dirt coming out about the finances. <laughs> and, and I think that's, I think I find fascinating, but I really like the stuff with Al, Alfred Austrian, who was a Michael Cohen of the day fixer for Charles Comiskey. He also represented the Cubs at the same time and just how he engineered his client's protection from the loss of an investment of the star players being signed into this thing in basically encouraging the White Sox to, hey, sign these players to, to new contracts for 1920, give them some raises and so forth. And so that's sort of the whole theory we call condemnation, that even though they knew that they had been crooked, they still wanted them to come back. I found that really, really fascinating. I've read the transcript for a long, long time now, since 2003, and I still enjoy reading 10, 15 pages at a time, just it's so fascinating, and, and and I'm so proud of what Jacob and I did about the format and making it easy, you know, each day a testimony to to peruse around the, the long transcript. So I get that you're both from Chicago and you're both big baseball fans, but how did the two of you actually meet and take this Lions <laughs> Uh, thing on because it is a huge concept but it's more than just this project it's kind of become your life well we're both very committed to getting this type of information out there i mean that's really the goal of saber the organization that i work for and that we're both members of is to really get this stuff out there and let other people see it and and have a crack at it we fully expect future historians and authors to use this transcript and come up with insights that we don't even have because our eyes are glazing over sometimes after going through all 300,000 words of it but to have you know more people go through it and 
uh, check it out and find some interesting nuggets. I mean, that's uh, how we continue learning about this whole story. We like to say that the Black Sox scandal is a cold case, not a closed case. We're still learning a lot more. And it's because of projects like this and because new information continues to come out. So it's still a very, very relevant story in the 21st century. Well, first of all, we need to correct that Jacob's a transplant in Chicago and he grew up in Atlanta. He's new. <laughs> His wife works for the Tribune, so I currently live here now, but uh, yeah. I'm not from. <laughs> so you know, so I'm a lifelong Chicagoan. Went to med school in Chicago, and and Jacob and I both have the same passion for third baseman Buck Weaver, and I actually still represent the family in their estate, mm. trying to get him reinstated. And so Jacob's had has had the fortune of meeting his daughter surrogate daughter, his niece who lived with him. We did a nice presentation in 2013 with her. She died in 2019. But I think that we had that joint passion and that's kind of got us hooked together more than 20 years ago. But it, it's a fun project because it's like a jigsaw puzzle and you keep adding pieces. And we feel that this book is a huge piece, but it's not everything. You know, we still have a list of a lot of stuff that we'd like to get. And one of the ones we like to get is Harry's Diary, which was Harry Grabner's diary that Bill Veck talks a little bit about that was discovered by a philanthropist when he was working for the White Sox named Fred Kreeble. There's still a lot of the criminal trans trial transcript that's missing. There are a lot of grand jury transcripts that are missing. So there's just the things we'd love to see. But it's just fascinating. And there's a pretty good network of people around the country that have an interest in it. It's just been a fun thing. And Jacob's done some tremendous leadership with Sabre for this. You mentioned you were working to try and get Buck Weaver reinstated. What about Jackson? Do you think that'll ever happen? Particularly since, uh, I mean, even Pete Rose was <laughs> exonerated. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you never know, but I think, again, Shoeless Joe is far more famous right now sitting outside of baseball and outside the Hall of Fame uh, than he ever would be if he was inducted. So I think there's still a huge uh, network of supporters and Jackson family members down in South Carolina who would love to see his name cleared. I mean, maybe it'll happen one day, but, uh, you know, I think he's from a legacy standpoint, he's doing pretty well right now. Well, Commissioner... Manfred, on the same day, he wrote me a letter denying my request for Buck Weaver in 2015, made the same, almost the same identical letter, same day to the Jackson family. He basically thinks it's a closed deal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a real problem with it, especially how baseball is in bed with gambling now. That's right? what makes it ironic with the situation. I've always said that baseball could get a lot of mileage if they actually did a a, a mock trial or an actual trial that actually presented evidence that would really allow people to conclusively come to some opinions about the situation. And they've never done that. They never had due process. And so obviously this wouldn't happen in 2023 with the union and stuff like that. Personally, I think Jackson's guilt is a lot more clear than Buck's. Yeah. Yeah. That is true in the movie for sure. Um, when you look at the subsequent impact on these players after they were banned, I can't even imagine that they wouldn't have debilitating guilt that, you know, <laughs> I can't imagine that they would 
I mean, what happened to some of them? What happened to them after? Well, I, I do think it's one of the misconceptions that they all kind of hung their heads in shame and they never had anything to do with baseball. The reality is they were able to make a pretty decent living playing independent baseball in the 1920s and 19. We've got documentation of ball games that Shoeless Joe was playing up until the age of 50 and Buck Weaver the same here in Chicago. He was playing into the mid-1930s, long after the World Series scandal. So yeah, these guys, you know, made a living. Shoeless Joe, you know, ran a couple successful businesses. So did some of the other players. They did pretty well for themselves afterwards, but obviously a far cry from some of their peers. And certainly they were never elected to the Hall of Fame or anything like that. But as far as their guilty feelings, some of them absolutely did express remorse afterwards. Most notably, Eddie Seacott, the, the pitcher. Um, and some of them were defiant until the end of their lives and, oh. you know, said, yeah, maybe we did it, maybe we didn't, but we're, we're going to, you know, defend ourselves. Uh, so yeah, it was a, kind of a mixed bag as to how they felt uh, about their own participation in this. Yeah. Well, I would say, Debbie, is that what I admire about Buck of the eight players, he's the only one stayed in Chicago. He's buried in Chicago, South Side. Okay. And, you know, he never had any shame his situation. And he remained very close to his teammates, you know, Ray Schalk, Red Favor. They always considered him was not part of the eight players. And in fact, the very famous stories after the World Series that Ray Schalk said seven men are going to be out. They did not include Buck Weaver in that. I mean, Buck clearly attended some meetings. He knew what was going on. He decided not to participate and he played it out in the field. He didn't snitch on his teammates. And so it's sort of like the little bit with the steroid era, you yeah. know, all the people, players could have ratted out these players who were doing performance enhancing drugs. So I, personally, I think it makes a more heroic character. I think John Cusack did a great job portraying him. I know that the Weaver family really enjoyed his performance. They spent a lot of time helping him prepare for the role. In fact, I think one of the funny things is that Ron Sano actually helped train uh Kuzak how to play third base and took some ground balls at, at Comiskey Park because Comiskey the old Comiskey Park was still up when the movie was filmed and so I thought that was kind of an interesting thing and nothing happened to these gamblers or did no one ever hears about the ga gamblers that you know created oh, we're, this we're just now learning more about the gamblers you know most of them continued doing what they were doing. Arnold Rossi, of course, is the most famous of the, of the gamblers that were involved in the, in the World Series fix. He was murdered about a decade later for not paying uh, what he owed during a card game in New York <laughs> City. So some of the other gamblers went on, lived out their lives. and Yeah, because yeah, it was uh, organized crime, some, right? Some so. <laughs> it was organized crime, but we have, to, we have to also point out, Debbie, is that another myth is that this was instigated by the gamblers. This was instigated by the two White Sox players, Chick Gandel and Eddie Seacott. Wow. They were the ones, and they basically took it from what the Cubs did in 1918, that the Cubs had fixed the series again with the Red Sox. And so when Eddie Seacott was the first one to testify in front of the grand jury, he, he starts off his testimony about, you know, we copied the Cubs. Hmm. I wonder how the Cincinnati Reds felt about it. <laughs> well... I think it's important. One of the, one, Eddie Rosh, who was the last living player in the Black Sox, Reds uh, players in the World Series, uh, 
he actually went to the set of Eight Men Out when I was filming. His granddaughter, daughter or granddaughter, I can't remember Susan's exact relationship, Dellinger, wrote a book about from the Cincinnati perspective. And there's also a lot of belief that the Cincinnati Reds players through game six and seven to let the White Sox win. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the whole one, thing is the pretty seedy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of the things to understand about the, the culture of baseball at this time is that game fixing was pretty rampant and gambling was rampant. You could go to the bleachers at Wrigley Field and bet on a game in 1919, just like you can do today. You can't do it with your smartphone in 1919, but betting was all over the place. And the ball players associated with gamblers because they were just around the teams. And so it was a very casual environment and nobody really thought twice about betting on their own games uh, and occasionally fixing games. That was something that, that just happened sometimes. This just happened to have the spotlight of the World Series on it. And they also happened to run into you know Judge Landis uh, as the baseball commissioner who kind of came in with the charge to clean up the game and get rid of some of this attitude. So that's something I don't think they anticipated when they were discussing whether or not to take these bribes. Yeah, I guess if Landis wasn't there, this, this wouldn't be a story. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and Charles Comiskey and some of the other baseball officials before Landis got in, you know, they did as, as good a job as they could at trying to cover this whole thing up. I mean, they almost got through the entire 1920 season uh, without the grand jury being called and without real public exposure of the Black Sox scandal. So if baseball had had its way before Judge Landis, they probably would have swept this under the rug and we'd yeah. still be wondering whether or not the 1919 World Series really was fixed or not. But because of the grand jury, because of the legal system getting involved, we have your real testimony, real confessions from the players saying, yeah, you know, we did it. So now we know. Unlike the 1918 World Series with the Cubs, where it's still speculation, it's still rumors, you know, did they throw it? Did they not? We don't know for sure. Well, that gives a context too, because if that was the culture of baseball, you can kind of, just like dog fighting, right? If you see cops and you see lawmakers standing there betting with everybody else, you don't think it's wrong until you get caught, right? So you mentioned that it's not a closed case. Do you see where it might be relitigated in the future? Maybe based on this book? I'm not sure that Major League Baseball has any interest in doing that. One of the problems Families. with this entire story is that uh, nobody comes out looking good. We use the phrase cheaters, cheating cheaters. I think that was <laughs> Elliot Asinoff's phrase originally. And the reality is uh, there's no heroes in this story. Everybody comes True. across you know, looking poorly. So I don't know that Major League Baseball has any incentive to, to relitigate this, but certainly from a historian's perspective, we're going to continue to dig and we're going to continue to try to answer as many questions as we can and hope that new information and new evidence pops up as it's been doing all along for the last hundred years. Okay, I have to ask you about the Chicago Baseball Museum. Okay. <laughs> Tell me all about it. It's not, or... brick, it's not a bricks and mortar. It's been a project okay. I've worked on since 2000 and uh, late 2003. Put a lot of time, effort, money, resources into it. Done a lot of events. It just couldn't get funding. Uh, tried a lot. And so right now it's just virtually out there. Uh, it's been a fun project. It's got me a chance to meet a lot of interesting people. We have it online, so I'm proud of what we've done. Mm -hmm. I thought we had some funding, but it didn't happen. Part of the problem is the fact there are two teams in Chicago that kind of divides loyalty. 
So I think that's part of it. So right now it's still out there as an idea and you always wait for a guardian angel. Yeah. You never know what the future might lie, right? Right. And there's a lot of baseball fans out there. That's great. Um, (laughs) And what about uh, the Society for American Baseball Research? Tell me about that. Yeah, we're still going strong. We have uh, over 7,500 members around the world. Some of the most passionate and knowledgeable baseball fans uh, out there. Anyone can become a Sabre member, pay membership dues, and you receive all the free books that we publish every year and have a chance to go to our events. We have a national convention every summer and a couple other big conferences as well. So all it takes is a love of baseball. I've been a member since I was 16 years old and you know it's been a great organization. I've met a lot of fantastic people and get involved with a lot of different research projects as well. So what's next on the plate for you guys? Do you have another project? Are you going to flush this out a little more? What's next? Well, actually, we have a a follow-up companion book to this. Basically, uh, Joe Jackson versus Charles Comiskey. It's it's a legal analysis of the trial and historical about what the era was in 1924. So we're working on on that right now. 1924 was a very pivotal year with a a lot of American history the Immigration Act, we have prohibition, you have that there, you've got organized crime. And so we try to put the context of the times, but also, you know, what is this, what does this, what trial mean and, and and what did it mean to baseball? And so we're working on that. We hope to get that out next summer. We're working on a symposium with Marquette Law School about the transcript and about this. So we've got a lot of interest with the legal community in this. It's a historic trial. And yeah. how many historic trials have such a nice product like this for people to review, to be able to to piece it all together. Well, thank you for agreeing to come on my show. This is awesome. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to add about this scandal that hasn't really been identified yet? Well, you know, there's still more to learn. We're continuing to find new sources of information. We've got film footage of the 1919 World Series that we didn't have 100 years ago. Documents like the salary contract cards at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. So this trial transcript is now another huge piece of the puzzle, but who knows what else is out there? We never say never. And uh, there could be something out there that that we've been looking for, maybe something that we haven't been looking for um, that might change the story and upend all that we thought we knew. It's a fascinating rabbit hole. <laughs> it is. I, I think you've done a great job of, of your questions and understanding the complexity of the story. So thank you for having us on. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Debbie Ellickson. Thank you to my guest and to you, the viewer, for watching this episode of Locker Room for Growth. Please subscribe to this channel and check out our past shows and clips in the YouTube playlist. The show broadcasts from Treaty 7 on Turtle Island the traditional territory of the Blackfoot people, which includes Siksida, Blood, Pikani, Sutina, Stony Nakoda Nations, and Métis Nation Region 3. Again, thank you for watching and please subscribe.